1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. It is also printed in your bulletin if you have that. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7 to 11. This is God's holy word to us this morning. Started in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of the, God's varied graces. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as the one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Please join me in prayer. Lord, the giver of all things that are good and right and perfect. Heavenly Father, the creator and architect of our salvation. Lord Jesus, our King and Redeemer, Holy Spirit, who indwells us and guides us into truth. There is none like you. We can go to no other source. There is no expert on this planet. There is no wise sage that can guide us to truth. Only you. And you have revealed yourself, though you are invisible to us, through your word that is here. That as John Kelvin says, you speak to us as babes in a language we can understand and comprehend. And yet, it only points to an invisible and real world and real reality that is beyond our minds. That Paul, who was taken up into the third heaven, said there are words on this earth that cannot explain. And yet, you speak to us now. You speak to us through your word about the glories of your work through Christ Jesus and the blessings that we have and the strength and the gifts that you've given us that we may prevail in this world following after Christ, the work that you've done and you've accomplished for us. Help us to hear now. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. I had a conversation recently with a young man who, uh, I don't know what minister wouldn't want to hear this, he, he said, can you help me be baptized? I thought, this is excellent. Yes, I, I, I can, let, let's talk about this. And um, one of the first things that I talked about is, I talked about, well, what church do you belong to? What body of, of believers are you attending? And this hit him like a, this was out of left field. He didn't understand it. I, I, in his mind, he's thinking, I just asked you, how do I be baptized? And now, why are you talking about the church? And as I explained that the church is not man-made, it's not just a way that we as believers have decided this would be a good way for us to just strengthen numbers and unite and weekly get together and let's, let's pick somebody who's super smart and make them the pastor and let's, uh, let's find deacons. And this is not something that we just came up with, this is actually the gifts that Christ Jesus has established. Uh, there's been such strong things said about the church that old theologians once said, you know, you cannot have God the Father unless you have the church as your mother. 
The church is not optional. It is the tool. It is the means. It's the broken cistern that God uses to uh, declare himself to the world, to bring in saints, to sanctify them, to guard them, to shepherd them as under-shepherds of Christ Jesus. The church is a family. It's much like a family. You have brothers and sisters. You have fathers and mothers here. It's like a tribe. These are my people. It's like a team. Together we are working together. And it's something that we give to. Our gifts, our times. It's the means by which in these last days we are able to survive and even do more than survive, thrive. The church is God's chosen instrument. Now up to this point in 1 Peter, Peter has really brought these saints a long ways. He brought them from uh, suffering for their faith and them just being totally focused on their suffering and in reality being frantic and fearful because of the suffering. And as we've been working the last couple months through this book, he's brought them and Lord willing, he's brought us to actually embrace our suffering. To see that there is not one single drop of suffering that is outside the will of God. There's not one single drop of suffering that we will endure that we cannot still entrust ourselves to God. And yet we also see that suffering is often the means that sanctifies us and God uses to save others. Those who suffer well, when we suffer well, having our hope set on another world, on another Savior, on another hope, and people see it, it causes them to say, what do you have? And we point them to Christ. So Peter has brought them a long way, but the reality still stands that the road is paved with many difficulties. But the hope that we have is Christ never, ever leaves us. And as we talked about even earlier, he didn't just do something. He's not just a bookkeeper somewhere and he, he's, he messed with the numbers and he said, okay, Jeremiah is justified. Tom is justified. And it's in a book somewhere and then he just left it. I don't know how the rest of this is going to play out. How the rest of Jeremiah's life or Tom's life is going to play out. No, he, he, he did in, put our name in the book of life, but he also sent his spirit into our hearts that we may live now in newness of life. So Christ is always with us, and he's filled us uh, with his spirit. And he's also filled others around us with his spirit. And he's also given others gifts that benefit me. And so this team, this tribe, this home is a great place to be. Christ Presbyterian Church in Temecula is one of many hospitals for sinners. Christ Presbyterian Church is a school for pupils of Christ. Christ Presbyterian Church is a home where you are welcome. Christ Presbyterian Church is a home base where God sends us out into the world. The church is not an add-on. The church is amazing. Church is phenomenal. The church is important and the church is necessary. It is the household, the bride of Christ. And so being its household... Christ Jesus, in the same way that uh, we at our house have rules and you at your house have rules, has, has given us rules for this house, the church. And in this passage, we see four household rules that God, through his servant Peter, has given us. So household rule number one. 
you need to know that the end is near. Everybody who dwells in this house needs to have the mentality and the understanding that the end is near. Verse 7 of chapter 4. Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. That phrase, at hand, means you can reach out and grab it. You don't even have to say, pass the salt, because it's on the other side of the table. It's at hand. It's close. You can grab it. And Peter is saying, you need to know that the end is near. Now, this can throw a lot of people off. And, and if it throws you off of, yeah, right, it's near, you're not the first. 2,000 years ago is when Peter said the end is near. 2,000 years ago. Uh, we can barely wait 15 minutes at a line for, for coffee. We want it now. And so this can really throw us off. But there's two things I want you to consider when Peter says the end is near. And it's not just Peter. It's actually John says it often. Paul says it often. The end is near. This is a very common theme in the uh, New Testament. First thing to consider is that the mind of God and our minds are so far apart. Unbelievably far apart. It is not even comparable. There are things that our minds cannot grasp that God thinks about. Isaiah 55 says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. And my ways are not your ways. You can understand this. Look at your life. Is this the the way you would have planned it out? Is this the way that you would have chosen for your life to go? No, but yet you know Scripture says God is still in control. So first understand that there is a breakdown between us and God. He's not just a little bit smarter than us, a little bit brighter. He's completely other than us. So that when we come to this phrase, you know, the end is near, and then we look at our reality, we have to understand, well, God is so different than us. That, that's just a hurdle we have to get over. The second is that Peter also addresses this fact. Because even in his time, when he wrote this just roughly 30, 40 years after Christ's ascension, and he's been saying the end is near, he actually wrote a follow-up to First Peter called Second Peter. And he says in there, he says, there's going to be a lot of people that are in society that have heard this, that the end is near, and they're going to say, well, where is he? Where, where is your end? Where is your Christ? And they're just going to brush it off and say, this isn't real. But Peter has a warning with them. He says in chapter 3, verse 8, do not overlook this one fact. He's saying you're missing part of the puzzle. If this is your mentality of you think, whatever, God's not, Christ isn't coming back. This is just words. Peter says you're, you're missing a piece of the puzzle. He says that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. So in other words, if you were to take that practically, uh, 2,000 years ago was like Friday to us, two days ago, to God. It was like two days. He's, he's barely had time to do anything. <laughs> And God's not, it's, his time is not our time. We, are in, we live in, in a very linear time, minutes, seconds, hours. God is not like us. God is not growing older. God is not growing tired. God never retires. God is different than us. And God says, be careful if you are of that mindset when you hear this verse and you just say, nah, 
I'm not worried about that. That's not happening. It, the end is near. Now, commentators look at this and they say, yes, it is linear. We are at the end. There is a, we're in the period of the end. We're in the fourth quarter. But that end can also denote that nothing else needs to be done. There's nothing else to be accomplished. This could not be said before Christ come that the end is here. The time is near. Because it wasn't. There was the, the Christ, the Savior of the world, had to be born. He had to live an obedient life that we could not. He had to die the death. He had to be resurrected. There were things that had to be done. Well, now there's nothing else that needs to be done. It is accomplished. Jesus has accomplished it. He could come right now. There's no next step. All necessary actions have taken place. And we need to live knowing that. The time has come. And, and thank God that he didn't come, you know, 1,980 years ago. Thank God. Otherwise, you and I would never enjoy the blessings that God has. Peter actually goes on to say, it, God is not slow to fulfill his promises of what he has said. He will fulfill his promises. But God is patient wanting all that he has called to come into the fold. Like you, I have brothers and sisters that are not in the fold. Not yet. And so there's a part of me that says, come, Lord Jesus, please come now. And the other part says, but at least there's still hope for them. At least there's still hope for them. So understand, he says, in this house, you need to know that the time is near. And knowing that the time is near, Peter says that's going to do two things. You, you, knowing that the time is near, you need to be self-controlled. He goes on and says, Knowing that the time is at hand, therefore, therefore, because this, the time is at hand, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. This self-control and sober-minded is basically, don't be crazy. Be sane. Don't be ridiculous. The Thessalonians, they, they knew that the time was near, and rightfully so, so they quit working. They're like, I'm not going to go push that pavement. I'm not going to go punch that time. They quit working. They're just like, it's near. It's coming. And uh, Paul had to say, get to work. Don't be ridiculous. Don't be wild. This is part of the balance that you and I as Christians are called to. We live in a world that we know is temporary. We live in a world that we know is passing. We know that there's an invisible world that is of much more importance. And yet we also live in a world that we know is meaningful and is important and God-ordained. So we have to live in this balance, always heavenly-minded, but also looking out for God's will here on earth. And so the very first thing that, that Peter says is just keep your cool. Be level-minded. Don't be crazy. Then he goes on, be sober-minded. And actually, uh, it, it's also translated in different texts, be clear-headed, meaning understand the situation. One, it, don't be crazy, but also understand the situation. And he says, when you understand the situation, that is going to lead you to start praying. And think about this. Where else would you go in this life if you really have a clear understanding of this world and the time that we live in? Where else would you, in other words, if you really understand that you have no power in your own self, 
to control this afternoon, to turn one hair white to black, to make a loved one live a little bit longer, to ensure that you get that job. You and I have really no control. We might think we have control. Our history might show that we've had some control. But in the next 30 minutes, you and I have no control over what happens. So if we understand that situation, if we all also understand that we don't know the mind of God, that he works very differently than us, he might throw us a curveball. He might throw you a special needs child. He might throw you unemployment. He might throw you cancer. He might throw you a death in the family. He might throw you having the move. He, who knows what God's going to do? So if you know you can't control anything, you know God, you, you just don't know what he's doing, you also know, know that you're finite and you're a sinner. And even when you know the things that you ought to do, you, you still can't always count on yourself to do it. And if you also know that the fact that the end is near means that Christ will return, that in the first time he came in grace, the second time he's coming in judgment. And for all those that aren't underneath the umbrella of his grace and his salvation, they're going to face the wrath. And if you're clear-headed and you, you know what Christ has taught about the wrath, it's an eternal judgment. It's a gnashing of teeth. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an awful, awful torture. If you know that is the reality for those to come, what else are you and I going to do except pray and seek the help of God? The time is near. We have no power in ourselves, but we also know God says, pray to me and I'll hear your prayers. Pray to me and I'll guide you. Pray to me and I can answer. I can act. Pray to me. Is there anything too hard for me? So it's this clear, he says to the church, he says, in this house, you will know the reality of your situation. And knowing the reality of your situation drives you to prayer. Why is it that a lot of people don't find God or even pray to God until they are in a point where they have no control and they can't change it? A cancer diagnosis or an illness or a, a tragic accident. That's when they start praying. They pray because they realize the reality that they have no control. A lot of commentators might uh, read this, and this might be said, okay, in this house you will pray. That that's what he's commanding us. No, the command in this passage is be clear-headed. And prayer and worship and thanksgiving and giving flows out of that. It's great to have godly disciplines of time in the Bible, time of prayer, going to church, but those godly disciplines by themselves, without knowledge of why you're doing it, are just acts. We're right back in the Old Testament of trying to earn righteousness through our works. But if you understand the situation that the time is near and Christ is coming, but there's grace and there's hope for the lost and there's help for you, you will pray. So we pray. So Peter calls the church to understand the time to seek God's grace and wisdom through prayer. That's the first house rule. Know the time. Second house rule, love one another earnestly. This word, uh, through guys smarter than me, goes back to the idea in, the, uh, in history of a horse running. A horse like, it, not just running, in full sprint. Its strides are as long as it can get. He says, uh, right here, he says, um, be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers, verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, 
since love covers a multitude of sins. This earnestly is, is striving, it's stretching, it's extending yourself in what? In loving one another. In chapter 1, we, he already told this to us. He said, you already phileo one another. You got like, you're my buddy, you're my friend. He says, I want you to agape one another. Just hold one another in the highest esteem, pouring yourself out. And now, again, not much longer. Remember, this whole sermon was 16 minutes from front to back. He mentions it again, love one another earnestly. That shows the importance of, in this house, how we are to treat one another. And in this sermon, I want you thinking about the other people in this church. You will probably, in your lifetime, go from this church to another church or another church. Few of you, this will be the last church you're in. But you are a member of this church. I want you thinking about this body, because that's what Peter's saying. We are a tribe. We are a family unit. We have other brother and sister churches around the world. But I want you to be thinking about this. He's saying, love one another. Love the other people that are in this room earnestly. Imagine this. If somebody came and visited this church, and maybe you are visiting this church. It's good to have you. But imagine if you came in and you just recognized that people were cold to you. People weren't welcoming. They weren't friendly. They didn't say hello. They didn't talk to you. They didn't make sure you had a bulletin. Imagine then you joined this church. And you, you voiced a need that you have in your life. And you voiced it to the body. But nobody met that need. Or imagine you joined this church and, and like all of us, you're, you're still a sinner and you, you sin against somebody. You're short. You have a bad week. Or just your, your greed gets a hold of you. Your, your judgmentalness. And, and, and you, you sin against somebody. And they, in this church, they never forgive you. They avoid you. They always look at you cross-eyed. What, what kind of place would this be without love? What kind of house would this be without love? Imagine how awful that is. Who would want to come here? What fruit would come out of this place? Uh, yesterday I took the, the boys swimming and I, I blew up some some rafts that we had and I did not want to take them I was tired it was hot out uh, Melissa had watched the kids the day before because I had a job I had a job late I had a bible study early I did not want to do it but she needed some some quiet so I said okay we're, we're going to do this guys let's go had to blow up all these rafts we've got kids that can put on shoes kids that can't put on shoes you got sunscreen put sunscreen on one kid he turns out he's allergic to the kids so he's in the shower washing off the sun sunscreen and we're all going, and it's in order to accomplish this goal and dad not lose his marbles and come back in a terrible mood for mom who we're trying to bless. In order to accomplish this goal of taking four boys and putting them in a hot truck to drive to this beach where they weren't too excited to go and I wasn't excited to go, we had to love one another. There was going to be sin against each other. There was going to be some... Uh, some disagreements. There was going to be some trouble amongst one another. But in order to accomplish this goal, they needed to love one another, have grace for one another when they took the seat that they wanted or they hit them over the head with the raft or they took the other's rocks. Or There needed to be grace in order for us to accomplish this task. Dad couldn't have it if I had the right every single wrong that they had. 
And dad, too, also had to have grace for the kids that didn't have grace for one another. It takes love. It takes having wisdom to being able to say, I can forgive you of your wrongs because your and my sins are forgiven and covered by Christ Jesus. This takes wisdom, like the whole Bible. It takes wisdom and discernment. There are wrongs that will happen amongst here that need to be dealt with, and Scripture gives us an avenue, a way to deal with those. In Matthew 18, there are certain wrongs that need to be dealt with amongst one another, or even brought before the church, and in some cases, even outside authorities. But there's a lot of wrongs, serious wrongs, that also need to have love cover them. Love cover them. This, see, this is how we have to understand this. We have to understand that we as a church, the people that are members of this church, are family. And when I got married, I remembered this, uh, my wife having the wisdom, knew that she needed to be careful how she talked about her family to me. Because they weren't my family. So if she told me a wrong that they would do, I would remember it. It was big. It meant a lot to me. How could they? But to her, it was family. And there was more grace with family. Isn't that right? Don't you have more grace for your, your parents or your cousins or uh, your children than you do for outsiders? And this is the level of it. We need to have the kind of grace that you have for those in your own family, for those who are in the church. Love covers a multitude of sins. Illustration, I think, is good for this, is that you have these marathon runners, and they're running, and, and, and they're at mile 25, and they are just done. Their bodies are just giving out. And yet they are at the same speed, they're at the same pace, they're, they're at the same hindrances, the same muscles wearing out, the same dehydration, and yet they come together and, and they're, they're stumbling along this path that, and they say to one another, the time is near, it's short, it's a short time, we're not far, let's go. And they, they grab one another by the arm, they're kind of both leaning on one another and lifting one another up. And as they run almost drunkenly, their, their, their legs are loose and they'll cause the other one to trip or their arm will swing and hit the other one in the face. But as they run, they, they, they don't fret over those little offenses. They keep going together because the end is near and they finish the race together. That is the picture that we need to have in here with ourselves. And we can have that picture with ourselves because that is exactly what was done to us, to you, through Christ Jesus when he died on the cross. And yet he didn't have anybody else holding him up. He said, God, you have turned your face from me. And he went it alone. And he finished it. The time was near. So let visitors not come into our midst and see that we are people who uh, point out rights and wrongs like black and white, but let them see our love. As Jesus said, they will know you by your love for one another. So the second rule of this house is to love one another earnestly. The third rule of the house is to show hospitality. This is a, a, a fascinating command from Peter to us because it's so foreign to us. It's a command that actually, I would say, in many ways does not apply to us, but the principle is eternal, and the principle clearly applies to us. You'll see this, because 
right now we can travel. It's so easy to travel. We can go anywhere around the country um, because we have support systems in place. We have gas stations in place. We have rest areas in place. We've got mechanics along the way. We have hotels, tons and tons of hotels that you can choose from, and it's easy. When I travel with my family, I don't know how far we're going to make it, if there's going to be a blow-up, if we're going to be able to travel well. So I don't buy the hotel until we get to the place. And I just go on an app, and I just find the nearest hotel and, and buy it. In the old days, it wasn't like that. Even 80 years ago, it wasn't like that. Uh, Melissa's grandfather was in World War II and had his, uh, a bullet from the enemy shot right through his hand, right through his knuckles. And they're able to work on the bones, but you're talking 1940s. And they had developed the technology, the ability in California to do skin grafts. And they lived in Alabama. So they loaded up their, their 1940s car, hopped in the car, and they had Melissa's mom, who was maybe like 18 months old. And they traveled across the country. And you know what they found? A lot of hotels would not allow you to have children. It was difficult in those days to travel. It wasn't the same as now. And even more difficult 2,000 years ago in the time of Jesus. Because of the Romans, they did have roads. They did have systems like that. They had good roads that people could walk along or take a horse. And they did have inns. We know that because Jesus uses a parable about the Good Samaritan that is taken to an inn. But these were along the main thoroughfares. They weren't in the backwood towns. They weren't in every town. So people had to depend upon one another. And in that society, travel was necessary. And so there became this cultural norm, this cultural uh, obligation that people lived up to that if you had a visitor come to your house, you took them in. You were hospitable to them. There were people that would keep a, a special little rations, and, and they didn't have a refrigerator. They didn't have a Kenmore to be able to put their, say that because my son loves Kenmores, see if he's listening, and to put their goods in. So their supplies were low, and a lot of times it meant a lot when a visitor and his family would come to their house, and they'd have to make a way for them to sleep and also provide rations. In their society, it became a fixture even to strangers we see in Abraham and Lot's day when there were strangers um, in the middle of the town at the well and it became evening, somebody had to ask them to come home. It was a law, it was a command. And so that's not exactly our situation right now. That, th this is where it is a little different. Um, we still are called to be hospitable. That is in, uh, that's a characteristic that an elder needs to have, hospitality. A person can definitely come to Christ through uh, being in somebody else's house, feeling welcome, feeling comforted. But the central idea, idea here is not so much just being hospitable and opening up your house. The central idea, I think, can be found in uh, John's third letter that he wrote to the church. He says this to a church. He says, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health. He's writing to a church uh, and to a gentleman. As it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly then, brothers, uh, that the brothers, when the brothers came and testified of your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. John is saying, my, my friend came back to me who stayed with you and he gave me a report 
that you guys are walking in the truth. And he goes on in verse 5. He says, beloved, he's talking to this gentleman in the church. He says, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers. He's talking about these travelers that carried the gospel. He says, it's a faithful thing that you do for these brothers, strangers as they are. This guy in the church didn't know who they are. He housed them when they came. These brothers testified of your love for the church. John goes on to tell him, you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. Give them supplies so that they can get on to the next town. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, Jesus, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like this, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. In other words, what Peter is telling this church to do is be hospitable to the messengers of the gospel. That's how the gospel got around. And these men would be sent out by the apostles and by other teachers, and they would travel into these foreign towns that did not have a Holiday Inn, didn't have a Hilton, and they would have to seek the hospitality of somebody in the church so that they could communicate the word of God to them. It is uh, what Paul says in Romans chapter 12. He says this, For it is true, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him if they have not believed? And how are they to believe on him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, Paul says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. The point here, saints, is not just hospitality and being nice and opening up your house, but it is being sacrificial for the expansion and the propelling the gospel to the far reaches. In their time, it meant sacrificing your house and your goods and your resources so that the gospel could go forth. And that principle still stands. The household rule, the third household rule for this church, for us, is to sacrificially, without grumbling, use our resources to propel the gospel to the world. And we do this because we know that the end is near. We do this because we know the only hope for those who have not heard is the hearing of the good news of Jesus Christ. So this principle still stands for us. Sacrifice for the propelling of the gospel into the world. And, and Peter, knowing our hearts, he says, don't do it with grumbling. What gifts? You, right now you can do it by supporting missionaries. Right now you, you, you do it by your giving to the church. You can do it by opening up your house to, to people. It is, a, it, it is a, a worthy thing to do knowing that the end is near. And there's a, there's a little side note. There, I've struggled in the past maybe with some of you knowing that uh, this world is temporary and I do not need to focus on money. Actually, money can be very dangerous. Wealth can be very difficult to handle. It can lead me. It can. I'm not saying it does. It can lead me into all sorts of harms and and trials. And so I want to be faithful to the Lord. I don't want to be sidetracked. So what do I do with money? And there was a time where I, I just didn't want a whole lot. But then, circumstantially, the Lord in your life and some people's lives can bring earthly resources. And these are not against each other. It is not a 
a necessary that is going to plunge you into all sorts of trouble if you know that the end is near. If you know that Christ Jesus is Lord and Savior, if you know that people are going to die if they don't have Jesus, if you know that you'd rather be poor and a beggar and have Christ than rich and not have Christ, then you will say, praise God for the resources I have received that I may use them to expand the kingdom, to show hospitality, to send the message of the gospel into the world. And that's a great segue into the the fourth rule of the house. If the first one uh, is know that the time is near, the second one is to love one another earnestly, and if the third one is to show hospitality, sacrificially be a part of helping the gospel go forth, the fourth one is to use the gifts that God has given you. To serve the church. And this is found in verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied graces. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, that in everything God may be glorified in Christ Jesus. I'm, I'm not an expert on the gifts. I haven't studied them in great amounts. There's debate over what gifts are still going, what gifts are not. But for us and for this time, you need to know that each one of you has been endowed and gifted with gifts. An ability, something that is supernatural. It even points to that, that it's supernaturalness in it, that Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as the one who serves with the strength that God supplies, that strength that God supplies, it was a term that was kind of used in the, uh, during their time when somebody would endow a theater and they would pay all the expenses for the choir, the choir and the actors. That they, it was an outside source that supplied all the need for these people to be able to do their job. Our gifts are supplied by God himself. He has given each and every one of us a gift. And I know there can be a lot of struggle. What is my gift? If you've even thought about it, what is my gift? And the reality is, is just what are you doing? How are you already using your gifts? What are you interested in? And this is also the gift. We're always thinking about our gifts like for the world. It's for the body. The health of the body will determine the health of the work that we do for the world. Again, this is going back to build up your understanding of that the church is central. It's the, it's the house that God has chosen to use. Your gifts of administration and of service and of leadership are for this body. Why was Tom Brady so good at football? Why did he produce so much? Because he took such good care of the body. In this church, this morning, I even mentioned all the different gifts. All different ways that people are contributing to it. And I want you to think about this. I want you to realize that God has already gifted this church with gifts. People that are exercising their gifts. We have leaders that lead us. We have people on the search committee that have been gifted with wisdom and discernment. Mary uh, is, is phenomenal at admin. Some of you are also helpful at admin with uh, organizing groups. Some of you have the gift of hospitality, opening up your houses. 
Some of you have the gifts of service. Afterwards, you're going to see people cleaning up and packing up the gift of helps. There's gifts of wisdom. There are some gifts that are more visible. My, my gift of teaching and preaching. But Paul is very clear in 1 Corinthians 12 that not, the mouth is not greater than the toe. That every person that comes here has a gift. And I wouldn't spend too much time thinking about my gifts. What I'd be, start thinking about is, what can I do? And the Lord will lead you to exercising that gift. And when you do that gift, it's not... I, I, I did a Bible study yesterday morning. I felt like I bombed it. Not every time you have a gift are you just going to be phenomenal. There, there's opportunities. God uses these gifts to build one another up. Verse 10, he says, as stewards, as good stewards. The idea here is a household slave. Household slave that have been entrusted with uh, the resources of a house. And a master goes away and he, he leaves the household slave to care for the house, to serve the house. And it says, even in, in uh, Luke chapter 13, it says, Stay dressed for action. This is a parable Jesus used that talks about a household steward, the same word that Peter uses here. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service. The master will put on a linen and he will have them recline at table and he will serve them. The time is near. Start serving. Start thinking about ways to love. And that can be anyway. It can be it doesn't have to be seen by others. I know some of you call up a saint fellow saint in the church and say, "How are you doing?" That is serving. That is building the bow. The same way that in a nest, the same way that in a, 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 a spider web, there are so many little connections that make the whole thing strong. Not every one of your gifts is going to be recognized by the church, but they all are recognized by God. And the master will come and let him find you working, whether that is in your closet praying for one another, whether it is bringing a meal over to somebody, whether it is slipping a uh, financial support to somebody, whether it is working on the search committee. Listen to this, and this is for some of you. Two, if you're interested in becoming a teacher or you want to know if you have the gifts of teaching, come to me. I would love to give you um, some tidbits and uh, some lessons and, and talk to you about that. If you aspire to be an elder, it is okay to aspire to be an elder. You are not being prideful. Paul even tells us in 1 Timothy, it is a, nov a, a noble thing to aspire to be a leader. If you want to participate, seek out the deacons. If you want to help, seek out. There's things that you can do. Uh, we as a church and all churches always need to do a better job of saying, hey, if you're interested, you got an idea, come. Are we going to be able to exercise everybody's gifts in the way that they want? No. The same way in a family, there's a time and a season and there's a way and a process. But trust me, your gift, if it is given by God for the good of the body, will never be snuffed out. God will find a way for you to earnestly be able to use it for them. 
And I just want to say, look, look at the gifts that God has provided we already saw for this church. We're up and running. We're going. We're without a full-time pastor, and we still are worshiping, sanctifying the saints, seeking out sinners, and, and glorifying God in the process. And see, that's our hope. We are given household rules, but remember, we are given the household rules here and called to obey them, rightfully so. But like every household, there is a head of the house. And in this house, we have the greatest head. It is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who, him, who himself made the, the end come near through his work. He's the one that ushered this in by his work on Calvary, by his humbling himself, coming into the world and reconciling us to God. He is the one that loved us so earnestly for the joy set before him, he went to the cross. He overlooked our sins. Uh, he didn't overlook our sins. He dealt with our sins. He covered them. Not with just saying, it's okay, I'm a sinner too, but by saying, I will die for you in your place. He is the one that has shown perfect hospitality. Having us dwell amongst this earth. Being with us and dwelling with us. And he is the one that not only has all the gifts to accomplish the work of our salvation, he's the one that gave each of us by his spirit gifts. It is his house. He is the head and he has done all things that you and I may dwell in this house imperfect with our sin. You are welcome here. There are going to be people in this house that are more visible than others. But there is nobody that belongs to this house. There is nobody that was naturally born here. We all were adopted. We all were destitute. We all need the head of the house. We all depend on the head of the house. And he has made us a bed. He has set us a table. He serves us. He washes our feet. He ensures our safety. He secures the house at night. And he ensures that the family will grow and flourish. That is yours. So all these rules we obey joyfully, willfully, in the power of his spirit, under his guise, with his help, as a loving elder brother with a godly father that we give glory to who has sent the Son. So let us, let us pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for the gift that you have sent. May you be glorified in all the work that you've done for establishing this house on this earth, for gifting it with all of the men and women and children that um, you use in your service for its edification, for its glory. Lord, you are the mortar that keeps us together. Christ is the foundation. Work that into us. Help us be a people that transform. We can't do this by ourselves. Lord, please transform the way we understand church. Not as an obligation or just as a duty, but a family we belong to, that we would long to be here amongst each other, that we'd be quick to forgive, quick to confess our sins, that we'd be quick to exercise our gifts. Lord, you're the only one that knows how to take over 100 people and show them how they fit. Not one of us, not a single elder, not a pastor can, can reveal this to every single person, but Lord, it's not necessary for you, by your spirit, will guide us. And when, Lord, there's some here that have gifts that have been wanting to use it and they're not sure how and they might feel stifled, I pray that they 
would have the mercy that Christ has had for us and the patience. And that they would love us greatly. That it would cover a multitude of sins that have been done over them. That, Lord, we thank you for covering our sins. And we, we pray for each person here to be shown how they may use their gifts, whether visible or invisible, whether big or small, for the glory of your body. So that we might be a beautiful family, the household, the bride of Christ. And we may glorify you till you come. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.